It's no secret that college sports have turned into big-time business, and big-time business can lead to big-time litigation and big-time decisions. Judge Claudia Wilkin of the Northern District of California recently handed down a 104-page order in NRA NCAA Grant and Aid Cap Antitrust Litigation, or the Alston case. Alston challenged rules that prohibit schools from offering certain forms of compensation and benefits to student-athletes. We have Chris Pace and Mark Weinroth here to talk about the Alston decision and its possible repercussions. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks. Chris Pace represents clients in commercial disputes, trade secrets and unfair competition cases, money laundering and other criminal investigations and prosecutions, and federal antitrust and RICO actions. He has appeared on behalf of Fortune 500 companies in cases across the country, including in multi-district litigation proceedings. Mark Weinroth litigates commercial disputes and has significant sports law experience involving litigation, transactions, and internal investigations. Prior to joining Jones Day, Mark served as Assistant General Counsel for three years at the University of Miami, where he oversaw a variety of subject areas, including managing the day-to-day athletic department legal portfolio. Mark, Chris, thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. In Ray NCA Grant and Aid Cap Antitrust Litigation better known, I guess, as the Alston case. Mark, give us some background for listeners not familiar. Tell us what this was all about. Well, it's all about NCAA rules that prohibit schools from offering certain types of compensation and benefits to student-athletes, essentially that the value of an athletic scholarship is, is not enough. And so the students in three sports, Division I football, men's basketball, and women's basketball, brought a class action lawsuit against the NCAA and 11 college athletic conferences, essentially arguing that those defendants fixed the price of the compensation that those student athletes receive for playing their respective sports. Mm-hmm. And the plaintiffs were, were seeking from the court a ruling that would strike down the NCAA rules that limit the compensation they can receive to the value of a scholarship. Okay. There were two general categories of benefits that the plaintiffs here were seeking, benefits related to education and benefits unrelated to education. Okay, more about that in a minute, but I can't help but wonder, football, men's basketball, and women's basketball, those are revenue sports, correct? They are. Is that a coincidence in terms of where this started? And That's exactly why those are the groups that brought it, that they are the groups where the revenue that the school makes in many instances, is far greater than the amount that's being paid for scholarships or any other benefits that are provided to student-athletes. For many other college sports, the, at the end of the day, the answer is that the schools pay more in scholarships and maintaining the sports facilities than they actually bring in in revenue. Okay, good enough. Chris, let's stay with you for this question. This was a 104-page order. Talk about the key takeaways. How and what did the court rule on? The main takeaway from the court's ruling is that it struck down a series of NCAA rules that limited the benefits that you could provide to student-athletes that were Mm education-related. So for the most part, the court upheld rules that limited compensation or benefits going to students that would not be directly related to education. But when it came to benefits that were related to education, such as computers, musical instruments, a number of other uh, situations identified by the court, 
the court said you don't need those rules in order to be able to maintain the competitiveness of, of college athletics. I see. And this if was, I can add to that, uh, you know, in, in other words, the, the, the main component to me of the ruling was that the court rejected the free market or, you know, pay for play type system that the plaintiffs were seeking when this case was initially brought that's what the media attention really focused on was, are we now going to have free agency in college sports for athletes? Sure. And have athletes who could be paid sums, maybe not the equivalent of professionals, but more in line with professionals. You'd have college athletes paid hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, to attend a particular university. Okay. So this was potentially an antitrust issue. I mean, the plaintiffs hoped it was, right? Why don't these rules preventing pay-for-play violate antitrust laws, Mark? Well, the NCAA was able to establish at this 10-day bench trial that there was a pro-competitive reason. There was a justification for its rules. The court concluded that these rules are anti-competitive, but in an antitrust analysis, you weigh that anti-competitive effect against whether there's a pro-competitive justification. And that justification here was that there is consumer demand for college sports and that college sports are a distinct product from professional sports. So if student athletes are paid a professional level, you know, cash payment as a salary for competing in college sports, that may result in decreased viewership, decreased attendance at games, and that that distinction between college sports and pro sports would be destroyed if universities were able to pay student athletes. And you can understand where they're coming from. Even a casual fan sees that difference, I think, between you know, the NFL and NCAA Division I football, just as an obvious example. Still, though, this wasn't an all-out victory for the NCAA. Is that correct, Chris? That's true. And there are a lot of various NCAA rules that impact the benefits that students can receive. And what the court really drew a distinction between was those rules that limit benefits that can go to students that are at least education-related versus those that are, once they become unrelated to education, are really just a form of general compensation. So uh, cash payments is the easiest example to say that's you know not related to the education. But certain things like computers and musical instruments and money related to cost of attending college, those things are all education-related, and so that was an important distinction for the court to draw. Okay, so education-related benefits, and you mentioned computers, science equipment. Uh, I heard something about post-eligibility scholarships. That's a new one to me. What's that all about? There were essentially eight categories of benefits that Judge Wilkin specifically identified in her order, and you hit on a couple of those that Chris talked about. And the one at issue here, the post-eligibility scholarships, is in fact a new wrinkle. And you would have schools such as the University of Florida able to offer a three-year law school degree post-eligibility at UF for somebody to go to Harvard to complete a law degree. That is a category of benefit that is new and one that I think the plaintiffs have pointed to uh, for the notion that they've achieved a victory in this case. And can I just add also, David, that it's one of the examples that shows the difficulty of trying to draw a line here. We can all identify the easy extremes, somebody who needs a computer in order to do their, their coursework versus somebody who would be paid $200,000 just to attend the university and play in the football team. Sure. But when you start to try to figure out, you know, where's the exact dividing line, it becomes very difficult because 
people could say post-eligibility scholarships. Another category the judge covered was vocational school scholarships. Mm -hmm. Well, wait a second. That's no longer while the student is the actual student athlete. That's post that time period. How is that not some form of, of compensation? So there's a lot of difficult line drawing, and my guess is that this is the beginning and not the end of uh, trying to litigate these issues. On that point, I think Judge Wilkin recognized that this was a slippery slope. Her order specifically states that the NCAA is going to retain the right to define in good faith what is a benefit that relates to education and what's not a benefit that relates to education. So another far out example would be an automobile. Sure. Right. You can imagine that a student needs to get to and from off-campus housing or even on-campus housing to their classes by using a car. Does that mean that every school is now able to offer an incoming student athlete as part of their scholarship package when they're freshmen a brand new car? And I, and I think Judge Wilkin would, would side on the line of, no, that's not what my injunction means. And the NCAA, to the extent it's going to pass follow-up rules to this order, would almost assuredly make sure that something like that would be carved out of a related-to-education benefit. Well, that's the old stereotype, right? The stud athlete shows up to, you know, big school U and suddenly he's driving around in a new Corvette. I mean, we used to make jokes about things like that, although I know it actually happens. So it's interesting that now we've come so far that that's actually maybe not a concern, but something people are looking at in terms of the realm of possibility. So interesting stuff. How did the NCA take the ruling, at least the, the education-related benefits part? I imagine they weren't real happy. Well, the NCAA has appealed the judge's ruling and has certainly stated in a press release that they believe the judge was incorrect and they believe that they will prevail on appeal. But I would have to imagine that the NCAA, looking at her ruling, is, if not happy, at least largely relieved. The main thing the plaintiffs were pushing for was, as Mark said before, this kind of pay-to-play, you can pay our student-athletes anything you want, that the judge clearly rejected. That the judge got into some micromanaging of NCAA rules, the NCAA may not like, but that's very different than if the judge had ruled, you have to allow these universities to pay whatever they want to any student-athletes they want. And and the other aspect I'm sure the NCAA was, was not happy with is because the plaintiffs did, in fact, prevail on a component of their case. Their attorneys are entitled to attorney's fees. And there was just recently a motion filed seeking $45 million worth of attorney's fees, which is, I think, in a, you know, an aggressive amount uh, for them to have sought, but uh, one that's going to play out you know, before Judge Wilkin. When do schools need to start providing these new education-related benefits to their athletes? They never need to. The judge's ruling is clear that the schools are allowed to but are not required to provide the benefits. But even if the schools wanted to, the judge's injunction has been stayed while it's up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. So the NCAA can keep its rules at least while the appeal is pending. But then after that happens, assuming that her order were affirmed, the schools would be allowed to provide those additional benefits as soon as the the order is affirmed, but they wouldn't be compelled to provide those benefits. And a briefing schedule was just released that the lead brief will be filed by the NCAA and the member conferences in July, and the plaintiff's responsive brief will be filed in August. 
That's not to say that, you know, neither party will seek an extension of the briefing schedule. And then it could be, you know, many months after that until oral argument and many months, if not, you know, potentially a year or more to have a decision reached by the Ninth Circuit. So this could be far from over. Yes. To Chris's point earlier about the schools being free to adopt whatever rules they choose, the judge has specifically indicated that the conferences themselves are free to adopt their own rules that restrict these sort of benefits. So at the national level, while the NCAA may not make a rule that restricts certain education-related benefits, each of the conferences, provided that they're doing so independently Mm -hmm. uh, of each other, may pass legislation that says, hey, all schools within the SEC, our rule is that you may not offer any education-related benefits of the ilk that Judge Wilkin has identified in her injunction or may adopt only some of those, or place limits, uh, or caps on some of those. So the athletic directors in a conference get together, presumably, and decide this is what we're going to do as a conference, and they set down their rules for themselves? Yeah, I think the idea there is that the conferences would be competing with each other. So there's still, from an antitrust standpoint, a competitive marketplace. When the NCAA sets it, says no one can provide this benefit, then there's no competition. If the SEC says we don't want to have these benefits provided to our student-athletes, but the ACC does allow that, and as a result, more top athletes are going to ACC schools versus SEC schools, then maybe the SEC says, oh, we're going to change our rule because of this competitive environment. So it sounds a little weird to say the NCAA can't do it, but the conferences can, right. but that's the reason. There's, there would be this competitive marketplace for benefits. If this starts to happen, if schools decide to offer these additional benefits to football and basketball players, how would that impact other sports, potentially? Well, I, I think there's a number of complex issues, and the one I'll throw out there as the most troublesome is compliance with Title IX. So universities cannot discriminate on the basis of sex, and as a result, any increases in the benefits or compensation scholarship packages that they'd be able to provide to football and basketball men's student-athletes, they need to match those in a proportionate way for female student-athletes. And though the women's basketball teams were implicated here as well in the Alston case, the sheer number of football scholarship athletes is so large that it would encompass a, a variety of other women's sports in order to match that number of 85 scholarships right. that may be subject to these heightened education-related benefits. This could potentially could get very expensive, I would think. I'm just wondering if Judge Wilkin commented on this. There's been this criticism, I guess, in recent years, and far beyond this case we're talking about today. But there's a sentiment out there that, you know what, the TV networks are making a lot of money, the schools are making a lot of money, uh, merchandising, lots of money, concessions. Everybody's doing great except for the kids down on the field. The people actually, you know, providing the entertainment. You know, coaches are getting big money. We're building big facilities. Did Judge Wilkin weigh in on that at all? Judge Wilkin recognized that there is a great disparity between what the schools bring in revenue and what benefits are provided to the student-athletes and, in fact, rejected any argument that these athletes are, in fact, amateurs in light of not only how much money is being brought in but how some of the benefits that the athletes are being provided. At the end of the day, though, what really drove her decision was not how much money the schools make, but whether there was 
a basis to distinguish between college versus professional athletes based on how those athletes are treated. So notwithstanding that schools may make a lot of money out of these activities, there was evidence that the judge credited that if the students were paid akin to professional athletes, that that would or at least could destroy the distinction between professional and college athletics to the detriment of college athletics. And and there's even a line in Judge Wilkins' order where she essentially hopes that gradual change will be instructive and that the NCAA may sort of test allowing gradual increases to compensation payable to the student-athletes and see whether that will, in fact, be demand-reducing. So I think there's an aspect of that that the NCAA certainly wouldn't be happy with. There are other aspects of the decision, I think, that are also troubling to the NCAA, which is why it's not surprising that, that they've decided to appeal this order. You just mentioned other troubling passages in the, in the order. Can you give us some examples? What were they? Well, Chris already touched on one in terms of rejecting the definition of amateurism that the NCAA has used as its defense in so many cases. And Judge Wilkin concluded that the fact that student athletes can receive things such as gift cards or gifts for participating in football bowl games isn't really consistent with the definition of amateurism and non-payment to student athletes. But I think the bigger one is an argument that we've seen a number of times in antitrust cases from the NCAA, which is that we do not pay our student athletes because it would create some sort of wedge between student athletes and other students at universities. Essentially, that there's some benefit to the rules prohibiting compensation that lies in the integration of student athletes and, and others in the academic communities. And, and the court rejected that in this case and said that, if anything, the fact that student athletes are not paid serves to increase separation among students hmm. because schools spend their substantial resources on athlete-only facilities instead of paying the student athletes directly. So you have this arms race where student athletes are maybe eating in student-athlete-only dining halls yeah. uh, or are working out in uh, student-athlete-only athletic facilities and gyms uh, and have these other perks of being student-athletes at schools and, and that that actually does create a wedge between student-athletes and their regular student counterparts at schools. Well, and conversely, that because they, in, some, in a number of instances, they may not have as much free cash and much spending money, they can't participate in some of the other activities that students engage in. So it's one, you're separated because you eat in a separate dining hall and work out at a separate uh, athletic facility. And two, you can't participate in some of these events that other people can because the fact of the matter is no one will give you cash. They simply give you these in-kind benefits. So in both directions, the judge found that you know the current rules can create a wedge between student-athletes and all other students at a school. And what's also pretty interesting here is that Judge Wilkin also presided over the O'Bannon case a couple of years ago right. and accepted the integration argument in the context of that case. So she's sort of done a reverse here, a 180 on the integration argument. Well, how does Alston relate to O'Bannon then? So the, the O'Bannon case had to do with name, image, and likeness rights. That okay. was a challenge by Ed O'Bannon, a former UCLA standout basketball player who brought a class action on behalf of, of other student-athletes, essentially challenging an NCAA rule that prohibited schools from offering payments 
for name, image, and likeness rights for student-athletes. And uh, the NCAA at the same time would go and license those name, image, and likeness rights in connection with video games and game footage. And, and the student-athletes thought that that was unfair, that the universities were making money off of their names and images, mm -hmm. um, and they weren't receiving a single dollar. This case really did not address name, image, and likeness rights at all. It didn't implicate those rules. The plaintiff's theory was that capping the amount of compensation that student-athletes are entitled to receive at essentially the value of their scholarship, the tuition and an additional stipend that adds up to the cost of attendance at a school, was what the ceiling that needed to be obliterated in this instance was. I agree with that, though I would also say that O'Bannon is the, the parent of the Alston case in the sense of it showed chinks in the armor. The original thought uh, with O'Bannon was that it would be a flat-out loss. The plaintiffs won in O'Bannon in the district court before this judge, Judge Wilkin. It got partially reversed in the Ninth Circuit, but it did change the rules in some aspects. And Alston was a more frontal, full-blown attack on those rules. But O'Bannon is what showed that there was an opportunity to do that. I mean, that's, that's why these plaintiffs brought their case in the Ninth Circuit. And it's also one of the reasons why the case was assigned to, to Judge Wilkin. And the strategy that plaintiffs used in this case is, is also driven in large part by O'Bannon. There's language in that case that discussed a difference between offering students education-related compensation and offering them cash payments that were untethered to educational expenses. So it's, it's unsurprising that we see this distinction in the Alston case where there's both a challenge to education-related benefits and non-education-related benefits. Let's wrap it up here. One more question for you both. Let's say we're out five years or so from now. Looking back, how do you think the Alston case is going to be remembered? Mark first. So I think it's going to depend largely on what happens before the Ninth Circuit. So this may be a bit premature. But if I could use one word, I think it's anticlimactic. I think when this case was filed, again, the media attention and the plaintiff's attorneys in their statements to the press were indicating that this was a huge game changer. This was going to be a groundbreaking antitrust lawsuit that was going to create free agency in college sports. And it was going to turn the college sports world upside down. And in the end, I think what they've achieved at this point is a, is a modest increase in educational benefits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kids might not get a million dollars for a scholarship to play at a college, but they might get free iPads and they might get free computers and they might get free musical instruments mm -hmm. if they're pursuing a, a music degree. And, and I would say I, I have a slightly different perspective in the sense that I think there are times when court rulings prompt private actors or other others outside of the court context to make changes. I will not be surprised to see if the NCAA and the conferences spend some real time going back through these rules. I don't think we're talking about a pay-for-play system. I don't think we're talking that they change the rules so that student-athletes are making a million dollars to attend a university. But I think they will loosen a lot of these rules and recognize that we've got to do something more for some of these student-athletes. Uh, particularly like, you know, David, as you noted, that the amount of revenue that comes in. Sure. As Mark also noted, though, they're going to have to deal with some tricky issues. There's going to be more litigation arising from this. And I could envision Title IX lawsuits coming when schools try to 
provide these benefits to some athletes, but not to every athlete, because a lot of athletic programs at universities are not money makers, and you add substantial benefits on top of that, and they will really be losing money, which then creates the question of would a university maybe stop offering that sport. Right, so, right. There will be big ripple effects. We're not exactly sure what they'll be, but I think in five years' time, we will see them and they will be meaningful. We'll see. We'll see. Well, speaking of which, let's do this again soon. I love this topic. I think there's a lot of interest out there. So is this matter moves toward appeal, or is there other things come up? Let's stay in touch and talk again uh, maybe later on in the spring or the summer. That would be great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Mark, Chris, thank you, too. This has been terrific. We'll talk soon. For more information, including biographies and contact information for Chris Pace and Mark Weinroth, visit jonesday.com. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts, Android, Google Play, and Stitcher. And be sure to check out some of our previous programs while you're there. As always, thanks for listening to Jones Day Talks. I'm Dave Dalton. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.